All right, if you have a Bible, open to the Gospel of Mark. So, Mark 1.1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Good morning. Nice to be back so far. <laughs> Your children have just grown a lot these past three and a half months, and for those of you over 30, not a day. You just, you look the same. Thank you for my sabbatical. Thank the elders. Thank you, Pastor Steve and staff, for kind of just propelling us forward. My family and I really, really appreciate the time we had to recharge, and it was much needed after 16 years. So we're back. We're looking forward to see what God has in store for our community. A lot of exciting things coming up here. For this next season, we'll be looking at the Gospel of Mark. We all know our vision, right? Doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly. We have a lot of what's and we have a lot of how's, right? We have a refugee ministry, we have our homeless ministry, we have all these different things. We have a martial arts ministry, we have all these different things. And something really important for us to cover, and this is something that Pastor Steve kind of challenged me on at our leadership meeting, was our why. Why do we do all of these things? And this is a huge reason as to why we're looking at the Gospel of Mark, is to center us on our why. Because I think we're doing pretty good at our what and our how, but sometimes we get so tired of that because we forget why we're doing what we're doing. So this is something that we'll be taking a look at as we study the Gospel of Mark together. We'll be walking in the footsteps of Jesus through Mark's Gospel account to better understand and know why by studying this Gospel, the, the good news, to have it live inside of us and to help us see why we do what we do and how we do it. So just some background information on Mark since this is the uh, first study in this series. Mark is the first gospel. There is no known written gospel before Mark. It's an account that is really of the significant things of Jesus' life and his ministry. And it's more than just a biography, right? A biography is just simply an account of someone's life. But the gospel is written to influence, to convince someone into believing Jesus is the way. Now, before this term Christianity was deemed for this movement or this religion, it was simply known as the way. Now, a few things about this gospel. A lot of Mark's gospel is dedicated to the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. About one-third of his gospel is dedicated to the passion and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's the shortest, so many of you are probably really glad about that. It's the shortest one. But it's very evangelistic in mindset. And Mark doesn't include some things that the other gospels do include. Rather, he purposefully focuses on the information regarding Jesus that is really, really vital 
if someone is going to believe in the way. And when you meet someone who questions the claims of Jesus, this is a gospel for them to read. Now, you keep in mind that the writers of the Gospels, they're not literary giants. These guys aren't Shakespeare. My life and teachings professor, who's a mentor of mine, wrote that it's possible that Greek wasn't even Mark's first language. It's written so poorly. And now, this isn't the reason that God chose these people to write his Gospel. They wrote them because of the incredible transformation that they experienced within themselves and what they saw in other people. That these were just ordinary people who encountered Jesus and under the direction of the Holy Spirit wrote down these experiences so that others would encounter Jesus and experience that same transformation that set them free. The Gospels were written based on eyewitness accounts. And these eyewitness accounts line up with Roman and Jewish historians of the day. And this is really important to note because the Jews and the Romans did not want to propagate the way of Jesus. They simply recorded what happened and by doing so they are affirming the gospel accounts. These Jewish and Roman historians concur with the gospel that Jesus was known as Messiah to his followers. That Jesus of Nazareth was killed executed under Roman rule under Pontius Pilate by crucifixion. And what we have are substantiated events by others who have no interest in furthering the cause of the gospel. They all concur with one another. Another important fact to keep in mind is when the gospels were written. Some scholars believe that the gospel of Mark was written about 30 years after Jesus' death, which is really significant because when Mark was written, there were still people alive who could disagree or agree with what happened. They walked with Jesus, they talked with Jesus, people who personally knew Jesus. Do you see why this is so significant? Because something that was written down, somebody could say, that didn't happen. I was there. That didn't happen. So witnesses to the recorded gospel events could agree or they could deny what the gospel writers wrote. So you see how the writers were held accountable against inventing stories or embellishing things that happened. What we find in the Gospels are historical data points that match world history from those who have no interest in legitimizing Jesus, namely Jewish and Roman historians. So when we hear stuff like, man, that stuff's made up. That's just a book of legend. That's just a bunch of myths. Are we confident that it isn't? Are we confident that it isn't? Because the history matches with those who are looking for a reason for it not to match. But it matches. And why would the gospel writers, this is something that confuses me a lot, why would they write that they were such losers? Unless they really were. right? They're just writing truth. Maybe it's just me. I know all of you are not like this. But if it was me... I'd write myself to look good. I would write, I walked on water, I didn't sink. I would just make myself look better. Unless you were just simply recording the truth. And it's not like there are only a few copies that archaeologists have recovered. Did you know that there are over 5,600 ancient Greek manuscripts dating back close to the time of Jesus? 5,600. 
and the earliest manuscripts out of the thousands of manuscripts are less than 100 years from when the actual events happened. Now let me put this in perspective. Let's just look at Plato. His writings were written in between 427 and 347 BC. The earliest copies found date back to AD 900, which means that there is a span between the original and the copy of about 1,200 years. They have found seven copies of these works. And so when comparing these seven copies with one another, it's not verifiable. They're so different. Therefore, archaeologists, historians have said the accuracy of this is 0%. They just don't match. Now you look at Julius Caesar, dating back to 144 BC. Earliest copies found 980, so that's a thousand years between the original and the copy, and there are 10 copies found. Accuracy cannot be verified, 0%. And you can see the same for Aristotle. Homer is actually pretty good. We have good copies of Homer's Iliad, right? Written in 900 BC, earliest copy found 400 BC, a 500 year span between the original and the earliest copy with 643 copies found, the accuracy is 95%. That is really good. What about our New Testament? Written in 50 to 100 AD, earliest manuscripts found in AD 130. Over 5,600 copies found, 99.5% accuracy. It is 99.5% textually pure. Here's the other thing. This is only the Greek manuscripts. They have not included in this data the Syriac, the Latin, the Coptic, the Aramaic manuscripts, over 24,000 ancient manuscripts. Jesus was crucified around A.D. 30, which means the New Testament was written within 70 years, meaning it was written within a generation of people. People who could contest what was written within those 70 years. People who could affirm or contest what was recorded, yet we have 99.5% accuracy. And get this, there is no ancient document that contests those other ancient New Testament texts. Nothing that writes against that stuff. The earliest fragment of the New Testament we have is the Gospel of John. It dates back to 29 years around the original writings, and you can go see this today. You can go look at this first century document today at John Ryland's library in Manchester, England. It is there. If the New Testament is dismissed as unreliable by its critics, then what can we say about the writings of Plato, Caesar, Aristotle, and Homer? The historicity of those writings are very well accepted, so how much more the New Testament? The tens of thousands of manuscripts we have with the earliest copies of the gospel with a narrow interval of time to when events actually occurred and other historians, namely Jewish and Roman historians, confirming the gospel records make the New Testament scriptures more reliable than any other ancient writing to ever exist by far. There's just no second. It is like Hussein Bolt. It's just like that. So to say that the scriptures were invented by man, to write off scriptures as legend or myth, do you see that it is foolish? That does not match up with the data. That is not true. 
What we struggle with is not that much different from what our ancestors struggled with, really. Pastor Steve did a wonderful series in the book of Genesis. Let's take a look back to Genesis to see how we've been struggling. What we've been struggling with is actually the same question that has plagued many till this very day. You look back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? And many of our struggles stem back to this challenging question we face from an enemy that is not flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And the question is, did God actually say? Think about how much injustice would not exist if we actually followed what God did say. How would we view, how would we treat, serve, and love the oppressed, refugees, the defenseless, the abused, if we actually followed what God actually did say? Yet not much has changed since Genesis 3. The scriptures are continually undermined contradicted, belittled. Many don't know the historicity of the scriptures and how they are validated historically, archaeologically, sociologically, politically. And yet, as I say these things, the ones that are really doubters, the ones that are really skeptics, you're focused on the 0.5%, aren't you? And 99.5, but there's there's the 0.5. There's the 0.5 that is not accurate. Let me point out to you what those 0.5% things are and none of them central tenets of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here's an example of the 0.5%. There's a manuscript that says that there were two people there, and there's another one that says there were three. That's inaccurate. There's a manuscript that says that they were standing, and another one that says they were sitting. Ooh, you got me. But the manuscripts completely agree with one another when unfolding the story of Jesus as Messiah, as Son of God, as the suffering servant, as the risen Lord, as the ascended to the right hand of the Father returning King. They are all in agreement with the big things, the central things. Even the Jewish and Roman historians will agree with the ancient manuscripts. They will not acknowledge Jesus by those titles but they will agree that he was born to a single mother rumored to be raped by a Roman, that he was born into a poor family from an insignificant city with an insignificant vocation who hung out with rejected people who people of the religious would say that they were sinners and secular people would say that they were unacceptable people. They're all in agreement with this. Here's something I think that the church that we've really done that's a disservice to Jesus is that we've sanitized him. And we've painted this picture of Jesus to be something other than he really is. We tend to overlook how he came to us. Poor. A really bad reputation. Not on a good career path. From an insignificant town. And we tend to overlook who he hung out with. Prostitutes, adulterers, right? sexual deviants. Tax collectors, right? Thieves, zealots, terrorists, lepers, the unclean. That's who he hung out with. 
And we've sanitized who Jesus is and what his gospel, the good news, is all about. Many in the church are chaplains of the empire rather than being prophets of the rebellion. I didn't make that up. I've been part of this clergy cohort that's been looking at urban violence for the past year. And this is a challenge that we've been faced with all year long. That we as pastors, as clergy, as people, we're becoming more chaplains of the empire of Christianity, of the church, rather than being prophets of the rebellion. And so for those of you who are Star Wars fans, you just love this stuff, don't you? (laughs) And so I wonder how much we've just cheapened the gospel. I mean, what are we really striving for? That great career path, moving into like a great city with great schools and all this kind of stuff, and hanging out with people who've made it and, you know, that are at least upper middle class where we are or more. Or, uh, what, what are we striving for? Who are we hanging out with? Who are we standing up for and defending? See, our Jesus, our gospel has been contaminated with that sort of thinking, don't you think? I'm guilty of it. And so we'll have the entire gospel of Mark to look into more questions that come up. And so... Just for the sake of this being an introductory study, let's just address some basics of Mark's gospel, such as this. How do we even know that Mark wrote this gospel when there's no reference to that in the gospel? Well, the earliest documents we have from the early church identify Mark as the writer of this gospel and Peter as his source. So that's kind of how church tradition has continued on and claimed that these are the sources and this is the writer. And it's the same Peter who wrote this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He was there. Peter was there with Jesus, and he was Mark's source to write the good news, the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? It's the good news. It's just simply the translation. It's the good news. It's the record of who Jesus is, how he came to us, what he came to do, what he's doing now, what he will do. Now, let's just jump into our text this morning. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel is about Jesus, and he's not someone who just showed up. The prophet Isaiah prophesied about this centuries before Mark wrote this. Verse 2, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. God's plan of deliverance was declared long before he sent his son, and he speaks to us. One way he speaks to us is through his prophets. How amazing that Almighty God seeks communion with us. And this is what he seeks to do here. Communion with God in sacrament by taking bread and the cup in worship, in study of his word, in fellowship, in prayer, in service, as we stand opposed to injustice, not just on Sunday, but throughout the week. And we have this communion with God all the time. And he's set it up this way. And God spoke, he speaks to his prophets, and his prophets speak to his people. Mark reminds us of what Isaiah wrote, that there would be a messenger, John the Baptist, to prepare the way for Jesus. Now, why would the Son of God need a messenger? Why would he need that? I mean, as the Son of God, can't you just kind of say, I'm the Son of God and I'm here? Like, listen to me? You could just do that, right? 
But that's not how it's designed. In fact, there's this period of silence between Malachi and the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament, and John the Baptist. There is a 300-year silence when there is no prophetic voice. Now, that's quite a few generations who have not heard from God. 300 years. Jews who knew they were to expect a messenger, and then they knew that a Messiah was to come after this messenger, but it had not happened yet. And so generations of people, they've died with this faith that Messiah would come, and it was not happening for them. And out of this 300-year period of silence, this prophet, John the Baptist, comes onto the scene. Now prior to this, there were some pretty dark times. There was a serious oppression from the Roman Empire ever since 70 AD when they took over. But there's this serious oppression from the Roman Empire. And there's this very little political power from the people. And maybe for some, there was this buzz. There was this buzz 30 years earlier in Bethlehem when these wise men from the east and their entourage, they came to visit the city. But it has been pretty quiet after that kind of huge event when all these people came to say that there was a king and stuff and then it's been pretty quiet why is that because Herod was a schizo and he killed every baby under two years old and so they're like hey let's not bring anything up like that again that guy's crazy that account can be found in Matthew 2 and so prior to Herod going on his infanticide Joseph, Mary, baby Jesus, they flee Bethlehem. They don't come back until Herod dies. And so there's a lot of silence when Jesus was from 2 to 30 years old. Same thing for John the Baptist, who was six months older than Jesus. Don't know how he survived Herod's infanticide. We're just not told about that. Maybe he made the cutoff. Maybe that was six months was long enough. Or maybe his parents fled. Or maybe he lived far enough away from the region that they were killing. That, that's why. We're not directly told why. There's a bunch of different reasons as to why that may be. We just simply don't know. But we know that he survived and he showed up here as a messenger of Jesus. And his years from 2 to 30 years old, they're pretty silent as well. But then John appears. Verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Just as Isaiah the prophet wrote 600 years before the birth of Jesus that a messenger would be sent ahead of Messiah. And to read more about John the Baptist, you can read Luke chapter 1, but we're going to stick to Mark for now, continuing on in verse 5. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now, John the Baptist is the first prophet to appear in this intertestamental period. The first one to appear after 300 years of silence. And Mark recorded for us that he baptized in the wilderness like his cousin Jesus, not from a place of notoriety. And the start of his work, his ministry, is not in a big city. It's out in the desert, out in the Jordan Valley where the river Jordan ran. But then the people were going to him. From all over the Judean countryside, from the city of Jerusalem, they flocked to John the Baptist in the desert, which was not an easy journey. If you just look at a map, it's about 21 miles from city center Jerusalem to the River Jordan. And it's not flat. So we're talking about like an 8 to 10 hour walk through the desert one way. Now why would people do that? 
Well, it's been over 300 years since the prophet spoke. This is pretty cool. Like, there's a prophet speaking? Like, this hasn't happened in like three centuries. And so, to understand the context, we have to understand that it's a people oppressed by the Roman Empire, whose religious people are just that. They're just religious. That's all they are. And they weren't doing anything for the people, defending the people, standing up for the people, oppressed, and there was no deliverance from anything. So their religion was dry, like this desert that they lived in. And then they encountered John, and here's a guy who's just like a spring of fresh water in this dry land with a message of hope, a message more than just religious rhetoric, more than religious formality, more than religious ritual. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, he calls out the religious leaders. He calls them a brood of vipers. Why does he do this? Because a good amount of them were. Like, that's what they were, right? They were taking advantage of people. They were exploiting religion. And you look at what they were doing in the temple. We'll get to this when we get to chapter 11, when Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who bought in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Just religious exploitation, brood of vipers. And the people were probably refreshed, not just by the water of the Jordan River in the middle of the desert, but also from John's words calling out those religious people who weren't doing much about how they suffered. And for many, this had just turned into empty religion, and what they had to offer wasn't spiritually nourishing at all. And so, yes, finally, someone calling them out for not doing something, for not proactively doing something. And so you look at how Jesus addressed the religious folks in comparison to non-religious people. Right? The fishermen, just blue-collar workers, the demon-possessed, just people in a dark spiritual place, the dead, the unclean. It's very different from how he's treating the religious people. Where are we? Is our faith just an empty religion full of formality and how we should think about things, how we should vote and all this kind of stuff? What are we doing? How are we living our lives? How are we making an effect for the gospel? There are a lot of people that are looking at the church in the same way that people looked at it when John the Baptist entered the scene. Religious, but just out of touch with our hurts, with our frustration, with our anger, with our disappointments, with our injustice. And yet those are the people we are called to love, to serve, to defend, to speak up for. And here was a prophet who people listened and responded to. He was calling people to God, not to a religion, not to a church. They've had that for centuries. It was not doing anything for them. John was calling them to someone mightier than himself who would address their present hurts and give them a hope for everlasting Jesus. And John was the messenger of proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so when we think of sins, we tend to think about just the things we think about, like lying and stealing and some sexual sin, which all those things are sins. But look at this. John didn't call those people brood of vipers, which tells me there's something to be said about those who have power and influence and a knowledge of God already. That there's some sort of knowledge about that. They're held accountable by what they know, by how they exercise power. So what are we as a church who has the New Testament, who has all the data that it's textually correct, what are we doing with this? 
And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of those whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We have a water baptism coming up soon. I invite you to talk to Pastor Steve about that. I'll tell you a quick fun story. Our last baptism, it's at a pool, at a church that owns a pool. Like, that's a pretty cool church. It has a pool. And so we do our baptisms and things like that. And then my kids say, hey, Dad, can we swim? I was like, sure. So they jump in the pool, and the other kids, they're fully clothed, too. They jump in, and so everyone's just kind of swimming, and they're fully clothed. Sorry to you, parents. I'm giving you a heads up. Bring your kids in bathing suits. And so... What does baptism do? I'll tell you what it won't do. You won't suddenly become sinless. I know this from experience. Because I've been baptized a half dozen times. And if you're really, really, really religious, get where I've been baptized. In the Jordan River. I was even baptized in the little stream where Lydia was baptized. I've been baptized there too. That water's cold. It's just all snow runoff. That water's cold. I'm still sinful. A lot. Like The more that I'm getting closer to God, the more I realize how sinful I am. John called people to Jesus the Messiah, the liberator, and a sign of this acknowledgement was they got baptized. Baptism is still a significant sacrament for us to practice, but the baptism isn't what will free us. It is Jesus who frees us. It isn't John who will deliver them. It is Jesus. And it is not you or me who set people free. We just have this really small part in it of being a messenger, of declaring something. And the significant part is that, that that's a very significant part, but ultimately it is Jesus. The baptism with water is a symbol of the old self dying and a resurrected self coming out of the water. It is symbolic, but Jesus who baptizes with the Holy Spirit is what is truly hopeful, what is truly powerful, what is truly transformational, and it is he who we need and seek. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that what we hear is more than just information we're, we're gathering, more than just data points of proving a point that our Bible is accurate and dependable and it is your word. We pray that it's more than just a conviction we feel to say like, oh yeah, that's right, that's the way we should be. But ask God that this is truly transformational. Lord, forgive us for playing church. For those of us who are just kind of going by tradition, that's the way we were raised, or just kind of going by a rhythm of this is just how we've done things. I pray that you would shake us out of that, reminding us that the way you came was the lowest of lows and identifying with those people and love those people. In Jesus' name, amen.